Thank you to the McDowell family, and uh, it is a joy to be together this morning, and I can't help but um, just think back to when Jake and Brody would light that candle, and they were about this tall, and, uh, and now their voices are much different, and giant young men, and um, brings me a lot of joy to see um, our young people here and um, engage in leading us. And, and <clears throat> one of my favorite things um, about our church is that, uh, I don't know, at least in some way I'd say, beyond the great leadership of their parents, um, those young men have learned to lead our church uh, because they've been leading kids in kids' church for a long, long time. It's just so cool, just the culture that God has blessed our church with to um, see them. And I know they will go on to... Uh, Wherever the Lord leads them to great things, um, which I'm really thankful for, um, brings me joy. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church, and it's so good to uh, be together again this week and to be able to worship together. Um, as I uh, said uh, in the first service, um, I let um, Pastor Matt know that that last song that we sang, we're going to be the weird people that sing that in March and in June, and um, we'll, we'll tweak that one line um, that kind of references Christmas morning. We'll figure out a new, but that, man, what a song. What a reminder um, to adore the Lord, to let us come to him, um, and reminder of his name, the name that at which every tongue will confess and every knee will one day bow, that he is Lord. And we get to sing that and confess that and know that in our hearts today. Um, that's a gift uh, to be reminded of that. Uh, we are in a study in the book of 1 John, and so if you'd uh, turn with me to uh, 1 John chapter 2. I think this is our third message in this text. Uh, we will be uh, uh, wrapping up, the, coming to the very near to the end of chapter 2 uh, today. Um, and um, as I think back to, and if you weren't with us, if you're a guest with us, perhaps you missed last week. Um, we uh, looked at the first half of chapter 2. You can find that message anywhere you find a podcast. You can look and go back and listen to that. Um, but we, uh, John is essentially doing this through this letter. This is a short letter written uh, to churches. Uh, it would be delivered to um, churches in Asia, would have been dispersed, sort of sent around to these local churches. And essentially what he's doing, as we talked about in the very first week, is he's confronting false teaching about who Jesus is. As we celebrate this Advent season and the incarnation of Jesus coming at Christmas, what we are celebrating is that God came to dwell with us, that he took on flesh, literal flesh, and to dwell with us, and as we studied in our, going back to our Hebrew study, um, that because of that, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we have a high priest who we can go to, and so when we are feeling weak and, um, uh, and, and, and unable to take that step forward in life, we can know that we have a Savior who is uh, familiar with us, who sympathizes with that weakness, and I don't know about you, um, but it, what I find a lot, at least, when I have conversations, if I sort of step into a conversation, perhaps in that conversation, there's, it's, it just feels or sounds a little gossipy, it kind of feels or sounds a little bit not edifying. You know what's happening in that moment? Two or three people are getting together and they're telling one another about all their problems, right? Well, he, wouldn't, he didn't really handle that the right way, or the boss didn't do that, or she didn't show up to my party what I wanted, or, you know, you're commiserating with one another, you're kind of sharing your griefs and your frustrations or whatever your angsts are. How much better is it that when we have those angst that are much deeper than just some of those things that we might surface level talk about or gossip about with our friends, when we can take those to a God who is familiar with those things, he, is, he can sympathize with us, and not only can he sympathize with us, but because of who he is and what he has done, 
He can give us victory over those things. That's much better. We don't have to just talk amongst ourselves and kind of commiserate in our pain or our frustration. We can go to Jesus. That is why Christmas and the incarnation is so important, such a valuable doctrine to our faith. So John is dealing with this because there's these false teachers that have come into the church and have said that Jesus didn't really come, that God did not take on flesh. And the reason that they taught that was they were amongst a group of people that had been kind of led to believe, and there's a lot of history as to why, that the flesh, all flesh, was evil, and therefore God could not take on flesh because he would be putting himself into, wrapping himself in the, the evil or the, the, the sinfulness of flesh. So he couldn't do that. That plays itself out to basically say, it doesn't matter what we do. Life doesn't matter. Our flesh doesn't matter. And as we talked about in that first week, the saying might become, eat, drink, and be merry. Let's just throw a party and do whatever we want to do because it doesn't matter what we do. I don't know about you, but I see a lot of people living life that way. doesn't matter what we do. doesn't matter how we live because it can't be fixed anyway. Well, Jesus says, no, it can be. Through me, it can be. The other side of that coin that some would take from that theology about all flesh can't be redeemed, there's nothing that can be done about our problems, would be to try and mutilate the flesh, and not just physically mutilate the flesh, but to deny the flesh in a sense. And that's a big word, asceticism, that just says, I won't enjoy any of the good things. And that asceticism really becomes a legalism. Any of the good gifts that God has given us, I deny those to myself because that would just further sort of flat, you know, build up this uh, story or this living a life that would say, I satisfy all the evil of my flesh. And John is saying that the gospel of Jesus confronts both of those two ideas and says, no, there's a better way. And so last week we looked at the first half of chapter 2 where he said that we have a Savior in chapter, sorry, in chapter 1, the first week where it said that we have a Savior who if we would just confess our sins... So just be real about our sins. Just acknowledge our sinfulness. We can go to a Savior, his name is Jesus, who did come in the flesh, and we can confess those things to him. We can confess our sins to Jesus. And as we do that, we can have confidence to know he is faithful and just, as it says, to forgive us of our sins. Who doesn't want to be forgiven of their sins? I don't know anyone in this room, even if you are walking in sin and perhaps even walking in sin in a bit of a rebellious state where you're like, I don't even care. I don't think that if we just sat down and had a cup of coffee, you would say, but I really just want, I just love this and enjoyed it. We, we want to be able to, to get past those things. We want to be healed and restored. Well, there's a means of which that can happen. We confess those things to Jesus. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Well, the the question that John then would answer that we looked at from last week at the beginning of chapter 2 is that we can actually do that and we can see victory. We can know that we know that we have received that from Jesus. We can have confidence. And as I said last week, one of the questions that I most often engage in is we might sit down for a cup of coffee or have a meal where we're really getting at a sort of heart-level conversation is, well, how do I know that I'm saved, Pastor? How do I know that I know Jesus? Because I feel like there's sort of this wrestling match in my flesh. Well, John would say there's two tests to that. And the first I would say that overarches all of this is if you're asking that question, let me just tell you, people who are far from Christ and have no interest in God don't ask that question. The fact that you're asking the question, I want to know that I know Jesus because I'm a little worried that I might not know Jesus. Well, the fact they're even worried that you might not know tells me that you know Jesus at some level. The test that John then gives is that if we say this, if we confess that we know Christ, the two ways that we demonstrate that is the 
is obedience and love. First, we are obedient to his commands and to his words. We've looked at this really closely in our men's Bible study over the last few weeks where we've been seeing Saul in uh, the chapters 13, 14, 15 of 1 Samuel. And Saul who would say that he and was anointed by God and called to be king over Israel by God. And yet all these things that he did, he, he denied God. He sort of rejected God's ways. And he would try to do some religious looking things. They kind of felt a little religious. But he wasn't obedient to God's commands. And Samuel tells Saul over and over again, God doesn't really care what you do. He cares that you're obedient to his commands. It's not the the trappings of looking religious doesn't help you, essentially, is what he says. And so, obedience. And then the second was that we would love one another. John says at the end of, or the first half of chapter 2, that the second test that we would have is that we would demonstrate a love for one another. And so as we come to this back half of chapter 2, John sort of makes a bit of a hard transition into reminding us now with those two tests or sort of those two things that we can look at to say, do we really know Jesus, that would give us a confidence that we know Jesus, is that we are obedient to his word and that we display a love towards one another, to the brothers and sisters of faith. We love one another, as Jesus says, they will know that you are my disciples by your love. That's what he calls us to. And so he turns and he then starts in verse 12 with this reminder of who we are. And so as we are trying to live our lives in obedience to the lordship of Jesus, we say in this church, if you're a guest here, our mission statement is this, that we're a community of people growing in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ for the glory of God, the good of the city, and the hope of the world. Basically, we're growing and getting low before God as he is Lord for the glory of everything, for him and for the, the, the hope of the world, for other people. It's not about us, is what we're saying. But we're growing in submission to the Lord. Well, if we're going to do that, the first step that John would give us, if we look at verse 12, is to remember whose you are. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. This is chapter 2, verse 12. Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So he starts, and this is, again, it's a bit of a strange transition, and then he uses some strange language. And I've put these, I know this isn't as normal for us, but I've put these in two columns because we can see that he is, in a sense, repeating himself. So as we read this, it wouldn't be, you wouldn't be the first person that says, why is John saying these things in the way that he says them, and why does he seem to repeat himself? I'm writing to you little children, I'm writing to you fathers, I'm writing to you young men, I write to you children, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men. Well, there's a few things that are sort of at work here. The first is, again, that he is reminding us of whose we are. He's reminding us of our identity. And remember that John, at the time of writing this letter, is the old man, okay? He is the last living apostle. And so all of the people that he writes to, he, as a sometimes, you know, any grandfather might refer to all of the children, whether they're the youngest or the oldest, as little children or my, my children. He's writing to us in this first statement that he says, I'm writing to you little children, is a bit of an umbrella over all of the people, over all of us. And then he divides the people into sort of two groups. I'm writing to you fathers, and I'm writing to, to you young men. 
Candidly, there's a little bit of a debate as to why John is using that kind of language. Is he dividing us up by our age? Literally, are we, as fathers, we know these things, or as children or young men, we know these things? Well, if we look at the text, we say, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. That is saying, he's saying, I'm writing to you fathers because you know Jesus, the one who is from the beginning. Um, well, young men can know that. Young men, young believers know that. That's not always something that's just reserved for uh, the spiritually mature or the fathers. I'm writing to young men because you have overcome the evil one. Well, what he is, seems to be getting at is that no matter the stage of life that we are in, or more than importantly, no matter the stage of our spiritual life, whether we are the mature as the spiritual fathers or the spiritual young men, we are all people who have known these things to be true. If we're in Christ, if we know Jesus, these statements are true of us. And he's sort of going through the list of the spiritual demographics, saying to them, it doesn't matter that you might feel younger in the faith or more mature in the faith, you know the truth of these things. And the children sort of over, is an overarching thought above all of them. We are all children in reference to this text. That's spoken to every single one of us. The other point that is made, and why I, again, highlighted them by putting them in columns, is it says, you notice that really the main only tweaks that he makes is the verb tense that he uses. I am writing to you, and I write to you. This is hard for us in our English language to really grasp this, but here's what John is doing with the verb tense. When he says that I am writing to you, it is John writing in his present tense time. I'm writing at the time of John, so for us, way back in history, I'm writing these things to you, fathers, young men, my little children, so that you would remember these things. And when he transitions and he says that I write to you, John is allowing himself through language to move through time and space to say, I am still right now telling you today, when you read this letter, you know the Father. You know him who is from the beginning. Young men, you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Remember whose you are. Past tense, when I originally wrote this letter, I wanted you to know it, and I'm using language, the, the sort of the, the, the ability that language allows us to do to tell you that it's still true. Isn't that vital for us to remember whose we are? Remember our identity in Christ? When my boys were younger, um, still periodically this might happen, but especially when they were younger, I'd sit them down and we'd have conversation. I'd say sit them down. If we were walking and maybe going on a vacation or spending time, really no matter where, if I saw an opportunity to kind of have a man talk, I didn't have daughters, so we always had man talks. So I'm looking forward to that day where I get to have girl talks, I guess. But right now, I, what I've been blessed with is man talks. And uh, we'd have these conversations about what it means to remember. And I'd try to find some illustration, whether it was through a, whatever we were doing in our life, to, to remind them. This is who you are in Jesus. Grayson, Carson, Hudson, remember that Jesus has done this for you or done this. Do you, I want you to remember whose you are. Your identity in Christ is vital for decisions. And sometimes I'd make that more personal. I'd say, Ross boys, we do these things. This is how Ross men operate. We don't do those things and we do these things. I sort of define that, making that an, a, a bit of an identity for us. That as the people that bear that name, this is what we are going to do. I can tell you intentionally that's a bit of a transition because my family name has not always lived for the Lord. And so as a generation changer and as a marker, I wanted to draw a line in the sand that says from now on the Ross name will be known as people who know who they are, who 
know the Lord. And so, I'm writing to you, little children, John is saying to us, because your sins are forgiven. By the way, your sins are forgiven, what a blessing, but I love the way he ends that, that for his name's sake. Your sins are forgiven. You get the joy of knowing your sins are forgiven so that you bring more glory to God, so that you bring more glory to his name. It's always about him. He's doing everything for himself. And as Brother Kent one time illuminated for us really well, who else is going to deserve the glory but him? We get all kind of caught up, and he seems a little selfish, doesn't he? Well, he's God, so he gets to do that. For his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, that you would know him who is from the beginning, Jesus. Remember that you know Jesus, the eternal Son of God. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Because you know the eternal Son of God, you, or Jesus, you also know the Father. Jesus would say that. He's going to repeat that here in a little bit. And I want you to continue to know these things. If we're going to live the life that God has called us to live, if we're going to walk in obedience to his commands, if we're going to love one another as God has called us, what propels me to love you the way God has told me to love you is because I know who I am in him. And that matters to me more than me getting my way, than me doing things my way. That's a work of Christ. I don't bring glory to my name through that. I want glory to his name. Remember whose you are. He then Gives us a warning, picking up in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This warning that he gives to us, the second point, is that you cannot have a divided heart. You can't have a divided heart. I would submit to you just from my perspective, and I'm one voice and one pastor and one little church, that the, one of the greatest challenges to Western Christianity, one of the greatest hindrances to our moving forward in the gospel and, and, and the mission of God is this idea that our hearts are divided. For now a couple generations, I would say, we have had many people who attend churches, are members of local churches, who are engaging in some various forms of ministry who have tried to figure out a way that they can love the world and love Jesus. And God's word says you cannot do that. You cannot. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. And he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, I love John in this stage of life. He can say whatever he wants because he's the old man. No one's going to talk back. You do, and he can just get away with it. You know, we all need friends that just say what needs to be said and don't pull any punches and just tell us the truth. Like he said last week, if you say this about yourself and it's not the truth of your heart, you're a liar. You have anybody that will just tell you you're a liar? You need a friend that will tell you you're a liar. I'm not volunteering for that, but if there's somebody in your life, you need somebody that will tell you that you're a liar. I've got a few of those friends that will tell me I'm a liar or tell me I'm dumb or tell me I need to wake up. We need those things. And John just says it just very plainly. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love the world and love God. It's not possible. Your heart isn't able to do that. And we know that to be true. Jesus said this, he's talking about money, which in Jesus is a beautiful illustration, because we know from Jesus' day until today, one of the greatest indicators of your heart and the condition of your heart and your relationship with God is how you think and view your money. It's an area of great pride, 
It's an area that, that we know, we, we feel like we have some control over our world if we can control our money. And what did Jesus say illustrating this truth? Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. That's Jesus' way of saying what John is saying here. You can't love the world. If you love me, you can't love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Spurgeon, in talking about this idea of a divided heart in a sermon long ago, said this, Oh, my brethren, speaking to his church, Nothing can soon cast down the church from its high place, mar its glories, and diminish its opportunities of success as divisions among the hearts of God's people. Not divisions amongst the people, but divisions of the heart. If there is a reason that we are not able to accomplish all that God might intend for us to accomplish as a church, I would tell you, and I say this local church, and then again, pervasively sort of over the Western church, is because the church has a divided heart. The church is trying to figure out a way, again, to love the world and enjoy all the things of the world, but still mix in a little Jesus. Just sort of sprinkle Jesus on. I always use this illustration. I know it kind of makes you all a little bit hungry, but I think of spaghetti. Spaghetti is the main course, and we just kind of add a little Parmesan cheese, just sort of sweeten it. That's what we try to do with Jesus way too often. We can't do that. Jesus is the main course. Jesus is the meal. And the gifts of the world, those good gifts that God gives us, again, John's confronting those, saying, you don't You have to rid yourself of those things, but your heart and your love and your devotion must be to Christ first. You can't have a divided heart. What happens with divided hearts, he explains. He says that divided hearts will ultimately depart. Look at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Those that had gone out and now had come back into the church, when he's writing this letter to them, they had perhaps looked the part. They had looked like Christians. They had looked like followers of Jesus. But they went out and they pursued their love of the world, and when they came back in, it was clear they were never walking with Jesus. Their hearts had been divided, and divided hearts will ultimately depart. We see this in our culture very clearly on display. It's one of the things that I know we have talked about in our church. You've heard me reference this. You've heard Caleb reference this statistics about those who, young people who leave home whether to college, to the workplace, the military, wherever they go on, they leave their homes, they sort of leave supervision of mom and dad, and the statistics show that they depart from the faith. They leave the faith. Well, why does that happen? The reality is, is because they have never submitted their lives wholly to the Lord, and as disciple makers, as parents, let me just encourage you, exhort you, and sometimes maybe perhaps for you younger ones, warn you. That if you try to figure out a way to love the world and then a little bit of love for Jesus, your children will see that and they will see the inconsistency and the hypocrisy of that and they will not always love Jesus. They're going to love the world. So they depart from, again, that supervision and that love of the world creeps in and takes over. We've got to be a people whose hearts are fully devoted 
to Jesus, who remember whose we are and that have undivided hearts. It's our pride that makes us think we can do better. Look back at verse 16. What does it look like to love the world? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the things of the world that tempt us. They tempt you, they, they, they tempt me. As Brother Frank, one of our elders, has said years ago, the shiny objects are just that. They're shiny. And like fish attracted to the spoon, we sometimes are so attracted to those shiny things of the world. And we need to remember that we have to say no to those things. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life. And let me give you some hope in this. Let me remind you of where I shared just a few weeks ago. Before we started this series in 1 John, if you've been a guest with us, I have just come back from sabbatical about a month and a half ago now. I think this is, whatever, six or seven weeks from a time of sabbatical where I was away and just spending time with the Lord. And I came back and I taught three messages called Friendship, or under the sort of series title, Friendship with Jesus. And one of the things that Jesus and I worked on that he showed me in my own life is that area of pride. That as a leader and as a shepherd of this church and and as a father, there's so many things, so many decisions that I make, things that I do rooted in a pride. I'm looking for feedback that sort of affirms me. So guess what that looks like? When not many people show up, my pride says, well, that's because you're not very good, Ryan. And because you're not very good, see, guess what? My attention is completely on myself, the pride of life. I had to work with Jesus on that. And in his grace, I confessed that to him. You know what, Jesus? Too much of my life, as someone who is in a public role of life and sometimes in front of people, sometimes my relationship with you is contingent upon how many people show up, how many people respond, what people do, all those sorts of things. I'm just being real with you here, okay? And in his kindness, I confessed that to him. And he's helped me in that. And I'm better today because of that, because I've given that to Jesus. And you know what that does when I'm conflicted, when my heart is divided? I'm a lot more angry. I'm a lot more frustrated because I don't know if you've noticed this, but this world's kind of messed up. And I'm a guy that's trying to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus and lift him up and elevate his name and bring glory to his name. And it sometimes feels like the world isn't responding or I've been preaching for eight and a half years and there's still sin issues that are not being confronted or haven't been dealt with. We haven't seen victory in this area of that. And I I could put all of that on my shoulders as if it's my responsibility to fix that. That's what pride does. Whereas now I can say, I don't care if two of you or one day 2,000 of you show up. My responsibility is to love you like Jesus loves you, to proclaim his word, to give it to him, to allow the word to do the work, all the things that we proclaim. But when my heart is divided, I'm not doing what God has called me to do, and none of us are. Our hearts must be wholly his. Jesus met me in those moments in that sort of season of life where I was able to confess that and give that over to him. And I pray that you would find a space to give those things to Jesus, to find those areas of your life where the desires of the flesh or the desires of the eye or the pride of life has sort of fed your soul in a way that only Jesus should be able to feed your soul and kill those things. Root them out. Remove them. Because ultimately, again, a divided heart will one day turn away from the Lord and turn to the world.
Well, John gives us some hope in how we can respond and we can be reminded of whose we are. And in, as we do that, as we focus on him, sort of the hope that we have to stay with Jesus and to keep our hearts undivided. Verse 20, but you, that's me and that's you, have been anointed by the Holy One, that's Jesus, and you all have knowledge. You're all here. Many of you have been here for a very long time, but even if you're only here, this is the first time you're here and you're hearing about this King Jesus, and you have the knowledge to know who he is. And John is saying to you, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is in the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. However, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us. Eternal life. You'll have eternal life. Said better maybe for our day and age, You cannot die. Death no longer has claim on your life. Do you know where death manifests itself as a claim on our life? When we try and preserve our life in this life. When everything we do is about preserving ourselves and not living for his glory. As we try to preserve our own lives, guess what happens? We forget that this life that Our flesh cannot die, and we don't make decisions, and we don't live our lives in submission to the lordship of Jesus. We don't abide. When he talks to us here in these last few verses, and he talks about that the last hour is here and that antichrists have come, let me just let that be a moment. This is another message for another time. But how often in our day and age do we feel as if the end times are near, and they are. But I just want to remember that this was written thousands of years ago. John says the end is near. And the Antichrist, there are those, it's not all of those that we sometimes point fingers at in our culture. You know what the Antichrist is defined by the Bible here? Those who would have a message counter to Jesus. Those who would preach something that was not the gospel. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That was what he was confronting in this church. They were saying that he wasn't the Messiah. He couldn't be because God couldn't come and take on flesh. But that is who Jesus is, and we know this to be true. And as we abide in Christ, as we stay close to Jesus, this is how we protect our hearts from those things that would divide them, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life. We must abide. We demonstrate it this way, or illustrate it this way. I love my wife. I sincerely, genuinely love her. She hates that she's in the room as I tell you all of this. But I do love her. And yet, she's about to smile. There are days when I don't love her the way I should. There are those times where I fall short of being the husband that I should be. I love her, and yet I don't do and live in a way that I should love her. This is a picture, 
I've said to her often over our 22 years of marriage that she's a picture of God's grace to me. She's a picture of God's grace to me because when I don't love her the way I should love her, she doesn't say, deuces, I'm out. (laughs) She stays in spite of who I am and the things that I do. In the same way, if we confess our love to God, And our desire is for obedience. Yes, there are going to be those times where there is a lapse in our obedience to Christ, where we fall short of living as God would call us to live. And the protection that we have for our souls in those moments where we do fall short and we're not obeying his word and we don't love others like we should love them is that we stay close to Jesus and the heart of Jesus. We abide in him. How do we do that? How do we abide? We gather with the gift that he has given us, his church, and we are reminded of those things, and we're taught the truth, and we get to gather on a Sunday morning where we hear the gospel preached and sung over us, and our hearts are reminded of what is true, even when we have drifted away, and hopefully our hope, our desire of this Sunday morning gathering, the reason that Jesus told us and God's word tells us to gather and not to forsake that is so that we might spur one another on to remember who Jesus is so that we would abide with him. We'd stay close even in those moments where there is a lack of obedience. We have the opportunity to know Jesus through his word. We abide with him as we study his word together. We study his word individually in your own homes. Spend time knowing Jesus, getting to know Jesus. He's given us his word. He's given us the gift of prayer. I think Caleb highlighted it when we began, that we're going to gather this evening in prayer, but we can pray, yes, as individuals. We can pray for one another. In all these ways, we abide with Jesus. We draw close to him so that when we have that struggle, we can remain. We can remind ourselves because look what, again, John says protects us. I write to you in verse 21, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. He says, I'm writing these things to you because you already know the truth. Well, why does he need to write them if we know them? Because we forget. Because we forget, and we must be reminded. John Piper said it this way, the embattled heart, in in a sense, showing us the grace of God. The embattled heart is typical of the Christian life. None of us has a consistently united heart and longing for God. So I just want to give you grace, just like Laurel has given me grace. I get it. You walked in this morning, perhaps before you got here, your heart was really not into Jesus. You were kind of distracted and thinking of other things. But God's grace was that you came here so you could be reminded of what is true. We must abide. We need one another. and We have to do things. We take steps to ensure that we stay close. At my gym, you have to, like, tell them that you're showing up. And you, if you don't, then you don't get to go. It's, it's great. <laughs> so over the last couple of weeks... I've noticed that my attendance has been lacking because my heart's been divided. I really love coffee, and I like slow mornings, 
And as I've kind of come back from sabbatical, my schedule is a lot more full and there's a little bit more rhythm to my day. And so I have to really be intentional in planning ahead of my day. And so guess what happens? I don't click the app and say, hey, I'm going to show up tomorrow. And that becomes a cycle. And a day goes by and then two days goes by and then three days goes by and I look up and then I do show up and I die and then I, it just kind of becomes a cycle. But I love that I've got to click on the app because here's what, here's what counters that. I say, before I ever have to wake up, I'm going. I'm doing this. My sons have been raised in a family where gathering with the church on Sunday morning has never, ever been a question. It is, we are doing this. This is what we do with life. And I'm not patting ourselves on the back or setting us up for anything instead of trying to say we're better than anyone. But that's just been a decision that our family made from the beginning. It will never be a question as to where we will be on a Sunday morning. That's how we have chosen to live our lives. And as a result of that, when I am drifting away from the Lord and my heart is a bit divided, I know that I'm coming back here on Sunday morning and I'm going to hear God's word. I'm going to be reminded of what is true and I'm going to get in it and I'm going to stay. Just like... When I click the app and I say, I'm going tomorrow morning, guess what happens? I'm not going to bail out on that because that means I stole Matt's spot. (laughs) That's not how, I can't do that. So I've got accountability and some structure there. Sometimes we need to be reminded of how easily our hearts are divided and we just need to put some things in place that say, I know the temptation of my heart. I know how distracted I can be. I know how quickly I'll sort of drift away. Let me put some things in place so that I can be reminded and my heart can be focused on Jesus so that I can abide in him. As the worship team comes up, I want to give us two psalms to just reflect on. And I want to encourage you to pray these things. Let these things be like the little button that says, I'm going tomorrow. Let these two psalms be that for your heart. The first is Psalms 86, verse 11. Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Perhaps you've drifted a bit. and The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life are ruling a little bit too much. Pray that psalm. Ask the Lord to teach you so that you might walk in his truth. Ask him to unite your heart to fear his name, to have reverence for his name. Or here's another one, just from a different perspective, Psalm 25, verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. That word fear, again, is a idea not of backing away from God in fear and trembling, but coming before him reverently and with respect. And just ask God to remind you of what friendship with Jesus looks and feels like. Let that be the desire of your heart. So they're going to begin to sing. You can join in worship with us, with our worship team, but... I've asked the media guys just to kind of rotate for here for a moment or two, those two psalms. Let's just pray those.
Teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Lord, give me a friendship with you. Make known to me your covenant. Help me to know you. So just spend a few moments in prayer. Let's ask the Lord so that our hearts might not be divided, but we would remember whose we are and live for his glory. As we wrap up our time together, Lord, I thank you for the gift of being with my brothers and sisters. I pray, even as we sing, your word might be our prayers. Would you teach us your ways? Would you help us to walk in your truth? Would you unite our hearts in the fear and the reverence for your name? Would you remind us of what it means to be a friend of God. Thank you that you have called us friends. Would you just reignite our hearts where there has been division in our hearts and perhaps the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life have crept in just as these antichrists had crept into the church that John was writing to. Would you unite our hearts on you today, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.